Sometimes churches will start Bible studies for special groups of people, parents or young married couples or divorced persons or alcoholics, something like that. But what if the church were to announce a Bible study for the rich? Probably wouldn't get anybody to go. Because everybody's, oh, 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 I'm not rich. I know people that are rich and they say, I'm not rich. Uh, It's very rare to find a person who will admit to being rich. Most people would sooner admit to being a drunkard than to being rich. (laughs) And uh, so I suppose that in addressing the rich today, as the passage before us does, I probably won't have anyone to preach to because they're like, oh, that's for other, other people. It doesn't, doesn't apply to me. But 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19 is addressed to those who are rich in this present age. And the qualifier in this present age refers to material riches of the world. So it's not talking about spiritual riches. It's in this present age. So before you go to sleep, <laughs> I want to remind you that when you look at God's word, you need to see it as something that is extremely precious. And so you want to take and apply it to your situation, even if it's not directly spoken to you, if it's spoken to another group of people, maybe it's spoken to children, parents need to sit up and listen too. And every, everybody, there's application for everyone. So if God has been pleased to speak to us and give us his precious counsel, we need to perk up our ears and listen, hear what he says. Rather than trying to avoid his counsel, we ought to look for every way that it applies to us. If he speaks to the rich, then we ought to take whatever we can from that counsel and apply it to ourselves. We ought to be like a hungry dog waiting for crumbs that fall from our master's table and you know, ready to take whatever we can get. He knows, the, ma- the dog knows that the, the food for his master and he's pleased if he can get just a crumb or two. He eagerly waits to see if there is anything, anything at all for him. Oh, that God would give us that kind of hunger. Besides that, when God speaks to the rich in this world, you're most ungrateful if you don't think that you belong to that class. Partly just by virtue that the time and place that we live. Because um, we live in a rich country. And we live in a very rich time. We may not be quite the richest nation, but we're certainly near the top. And if food and clothing is the standard for contentment, and 1 Timothy says that it is, then we certainly have a lot more than necessities. Look at all the servants that you have. You have servants to wash your clothes, your washing machine, to start fires, electricity, furnaces, stoves, what if you had to kindle a fire for all those things that you, you do? To take you from one place to another, cars and buses, to make your clothes. When is the last time that you had to like, make um, you know, you, thread from flax or wool? <laughs> it's a big job. You get started right from the bottom and, and work up. To carry messages from one place to another, mail, phone, internet. To produce all kinds of technology for you. You have servants that are at work doing that. How many believers before us would have loved to have their own copy of a Bible? We can easily obtain a copy of a Bible. It's not a difficult thing for us. We just decide what kind of leather we want. You know, sometimes it's our big decision. Today's message is spoken then to you who are indeed the rich of this world. 
if you are not rich relative to other people in our society, you are certainly rich relative to other countries and other societies. So listen and be eager to apply God's word to your own life. God has been pleased to reveal his will to the rich. So today, from 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19, I want to show you two pitfalls, two purposes, and two promises about riches, having to do with possession of riches. So I'll begin by reading the passage. It's 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. Command those, Timothy is told by Paul, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. May the Lord add his blessing to the word that we have just heard. So let's begin. The two pitfalls are found in verse 17. Already Paul has addressed the very serious problem of those who are covetous, who desire to be rich. We look again at 1 Timothy, look back a little bit at 1 Timothy 6, 9, and 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil from which or for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So in these verses, Paul warns about desiring riches. But in verse 17 that we look at today, he warns about something a little different. The dangers and the perils associated with possessing riches. So before it was a warning about covetousness, desiring riches that we don't have, and now it's about the dangers and perils of of possessing riches. He is not saying that it's wrong to possess riches. Some of God's favorites have done so. Abraham was rich. Job was very rich. Solomon was even more rich. Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. It's honored in the scripture. Cornelius was a wealthy, relatively wealthy man. Gaius was a rich man. Lydia was a rich woman. And there are many others. He is not saying that it is wrong to possess riches, but he's speaking instead about particular dangers or pitfalls that those believers who possess riches face. The temptations associated with riches are very strong. As Calvin put it, the perils mentioned in verse 17 follow the possessors of riches almost like a man's shadow follows his body. So these perils are always there. You can't get away from your shadow. I guess you can go in a shady place, but (laughs) you're wise to watch out for these dangers in your life. This is part of fighting the good fight of faith that he's been talking about here. So the first pitfall is haughtiness. Now you all know what haughtiness is. You've all seen it. It's an attitude of superiority. The word in the original is a compound that means high-minded. So it refers to someone who thinks highly of himself and despises others. It's the temptation of the rich man to think that he's smarter and wiser than people don't have as much. 
He wrongly assumes that the increase of wealth is everyone's chief goal. Therefore, he's made it further with the chief goal that it belongs to everyone, so he must be superior to everyone else. He looks down his nose and speaks condescendingly to those who have less. But the Bible tells us that the rich in the church must be willing to associate with their brothers in the church, brothers and sisters in the church who have less. And in Romans 12, 16, Paul says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. So, like, don't set yourself up as above people that don't have it. He says, do not be wise in your own opinion. Now, this was a problem also in Corinth, where the rich would not associate with the poor, even when it came to eating at the Lord's Supper, the feasts that they had. This shows how ugly this problem can get. If ever there was a place and a time where we are on common ground, it should be at the Lord's table. Here we are reminded that apart from Christ's sacrifice, we're nothing but a bunch of condemned criminals justly condemned. That's what we remember. There's there's no room for haughtiness. We're all saved by the same faith, the same Savior, the same grace. Moreover, our Lord Jesus has set the example for us. He was rich beyond all imagination as the Son of God in heaven. Yet he left the glories of heaven and stooped to come to earth to this fallen sinful world where poor, miserable sinners live. And when he was here, he associated with the lowly and the despised. When you look down your nose at your brother because he is poorer than you, you look down your nose at Jesus Christ because he has made himself the brother to the poor brother. Haughtiness is such a pernicious thing that it doesn't limit itself to man. The haughty man's haughtiness extends all the way up to heaven. That's right, the haughty man even elevates himself above God. And that's the danger that riches can make you elevate yourself above God. A prime example is Belshazzar in the Old Testament. Daniel, Daniel 5, 22 and 23. Daniel says to him, you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of his house, of God's house before you. And you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. They were supposed to be set apart for God. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways, you have not glorified. Daniel then puts his finger right on the cause of haughtiness. The haughty man forgets that it is God who holds his breath in his hand and owns all of his ways. He forgets every single breath he takes is from God. He has nothing without God. He thinks that he has all of these things by his own power and by his own wisdom rather than by the gift of God. He is deceived into thinking he can make his own way blessed by attaining the things of the world. He thinks that he can get along fine without God when every moment he is dependent upon God. And so this is something you see that reaches into every one of us because we all have that tendency to trust in our riches and then to elevate ourselves that we're self-sufficient because we have 
stuff in our cupboard. We don't have to look to God. We don't have to rely on Him. We, oh, I've got this. I can, I can take care of this. I can handle this. That, that kind of an attitude. This leads to the second pitfall that threatens you with regards to your wealth. That your riches should become the object of your hope rather than God. The rich of this world are constantly tempted to look to riches both for their happiness as well as their security. But this is both wicked and foolish. It is wicked because it attributes to riches the trust that ought to be directed to God only, like we read in Deuteronomy 8. When you trust in riches, you honor riches when you ought to be honoring God. You make it appear that the riches provide what you can what only God can provide. And you give riches the credit that belongs to God. When Augustine saw people worshiping all kinds of other gods, he said, uh, why don't you just worship one God, the one that can ultimately make you happy? If you have all the possessions of the world and you aren't happy, what do you have? If you have you know, protection and perfect security from the gods that protect, uh, but you're not happy, what do you have? And you know, he, he basically just was blown away the whole idea of having all these other things that we, we trust in. Every year on Remembrance Day, we remember those who defended our nation. But sadly, there are many who do not give the glory to God for the victories that our nation has enjoyed. They can't see beyond them. For sure, credit and honor is due to those who have loyally defended our nation. But the ultimate credit is due to God, who is pleased to use these men and who gifted these men and gave them the courage that they had to serve and who brought about the defeat of our enemies. No army is able to defend the nation unless God gives them success. It is not just a mistake or a bit of an oversight to admit, omit God. It is actually extremely wicked. It's wrong to leave out God. We tend to think lightly of sins against God, and we tend to only despise sins against other people. Somebody hasn't done any wrong unless they hurt someone else. That's our tendency. But if we've done wrong to God, we've done wrong to one who is greater than anyone on earth. But those sins that strike more directly against God are the worst sins of all. Trusting in riches violates the first three commandments of God, and sometimes the fourth as well. It has to do, it is to have another God that you look to and give glory to. And what a pitfall to, to uh, substitute it for God is, that's the pitfall. It is idolatry because you worship and trust the creature rather than the creator. And it is to take the Lord in vain because you ignore him as he reveals himself in giving you good things. You, you disregard him as if he didn't give it to you when he did. So you take his name in vain. And uh, with the Sabbath, of course, that you'll violate the Sabbath because of your, your riches are the thing that matters to you. You've got to work and get more riches. So this sin is wicked. But I said to you that it is also foolish. In fact, it is the height of folly to put your trust in riches. Riches are not always there for you. Paul speaks of them as uncertain riches because you never know when they will fly away. Solomon tells us that riches have wings, and they most certainly do. In Proverbs 23, 5, he says, Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. 
Do you not see all the ways that you can lose them? We were uh, acquainted with the, the family with Peninsula Farms that had Peninsula Farms uh, made yogurt and things like that. And uh, the Christian people, they were forced to go out of business because of government regulations that were impossible for them to meet. Even though they actually had equipment that was superior to the equipment that other people had, the government didn't understand it and said, you've got to get new equipment because we don't understand your equipment. We can't measure it. In a moment, this family, who had been successful in everything, owners of a prosperous business that was growing, was broken in debt. They had absolutely no warning that their riches would take wings and fly away. There are so many things that can happen to riches. Riches can be stolen by thieves and fraudulent persons. They can be destroyed or seized by a nation's enemies. How many fortunes have been lost by war? They can be lost by a crash in the economy or in the sector in which you serve. You can have a meltdown. They, they can be destroyed by fire or storms like we've seen recently in Nova Scotia with the fire. People just, their house is gone. They can be lost by your own foolishness. James reminds us that it is not just riches that are uncertain, but the rich themselves that are uncertain. Not only may riches not always be there for you, but you will not always be there for them. You can have a big pile, and when you're dead, it's not really all that helpful. James 1, 9 through 11 exhorts, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he, the rich man, will pass away. For no sooner has the sun arisen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. The rich man ought to glory when he is humbled by the gospel, James tells us. He ought to rejoice because his eyes have been opened to see how foolish he has been to trust in riches. This is the kind of glorying that you have when you realize before it is too late that you had invested everything in the wrong place. Good thing to know, isn't it? You're very happy when you realize, oh, wow, I just got a tip that this company that I invested all of my inheritance in is going to go under. And I found out about that. And I was able to get my stuff out before it happened. You rejoice to be shown how foolish you were before it's too late. So I've been putting all my riches in the wrong place, focusing my hope and everything in the wrong place. It's a foolish thing to do. You see how this exposure of your folly also brings down your haughtiness. You say, what a fool I have been to trust in uncertain riches rather than the living God. Do you know something? I could talk all day about how insecure riches are and how wicked and foolish it is to trust in them. But you will never be fully cured of your trust in riches until you behold the glory and the beauty of God. Every day you see people buying things with riches and enjoying those things, and they do. You see what riches can do. They have a lot of power. That's what makes you inclined to trust in them. It's so visible. You yourself have experienced the joy of new possessions, having things that maybe don't break or whatever. But you're commanded in this passage not to trust in riches, but to trust in something else that is far better in the living God. 
You need to start seeing Him. And all those blessings that you have, all the good meals, the awesome pieces of technology, the beautiful things that you have, you need to see God's hand. You see, it's not that we look at those things and we despise the things that we have in the world, but we see them, the one who is better than them, who enables us to have them and possess them and enjoy them. Every good and perfect gift comes from Him. In a rich society like ours, you need to see His gracious generosity. The problem is, is that you don't look high enough. When you attribute to the gift what you ought to attribute to the giver, then you're looking too low. Your eyes need to go up and say, thank you, Lord, for these things. And so I would urge you to pursue God's favor. In Him, you ought to place your trust. He is not uncertain. He is always there for His people. And nothing can separate His people from Him. He alone can guarantee happiness and security. It is not riches that make you secure and happy. It is God alone who can give that to you only under His favor. There is only one way to gain His favor. That's by faith. The door to God's favor is Jesus Christ. You go through that door and you're in His favor. You have access to God's grace by faith in Jesus Christ. He came to this world to restore sinners to God. Don't trust in riches. They won't restore you to God. Turn to Jesus Christ. God the Father has given Him all authority to bless and to curse. And He promises to bless all those who trust in Him, to pardon their sins, and to give them eternal life. So don't let riches make you haughty, and don't trust in them. Those are the pitfalls. Riches are the gift of God and find their true purpose in God, not outside of God. The two purposes for riches are given at the end of verse 17 and in verse 18. The first purpose of riches might surprise you. It is for enjoyment. It says God gives us richly all things to enjoy. Now let's stop and think about that for a minute. You don't think that God created gold and silver and precious stones, beautiful oceans teeming with creatures and beautiful skies filled with stars and mountains and hills, and that He placed Adam and Eve in a garden that was filled with beautiful flowers and excellent food and animals so that man could be bored. Do you? That that doesn't make any sense. Of course not. He gave us these things to enjoy. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. You have a whole lot more than what you need for mere subsistence. God has his eye on enjoyment and pleasure. He delights in giving good gifts to his children. No doubt after man fell, God drove us out of the garden of delight. But in his mercy... He continues to bestow good things on us. Only now the things are corrupted by death and they have various problems. Yet the testimony of God's generosity and kindness still shines in all the gifts and things that He gives to us. Every time we receive something. And and Acts 14.17 reminds us that God did not leave Himself without witness. And that He did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons filling our hearts with food and what? Gladness. 
right? the enjoyment, happiness that comes from those things. We need to learn to enjoy what God has given us to enjoy. At first, that might seem like a hard thing to do. You might say, why would we have to learn, or, or a strange thing to say to do, why would we have to learn to do that? Isn't our problem that we give riches too much credit and honor, like, like what I said before, that we enjoy them too much? In a way, that's true. But in another way, it's not true at all. You could also say that we don't enjoy or honor riches nearly as much as we should. The reason is because we don't regard them as the gifts of God. They are much more valuable when they're the gifts of God than they are when they're independent of God. And so the world really doesn't know how to enjoy riches, even when riches is the, is the only thing that they look to and they have nothing else beyond that. They do not look at riches as highly as we do who know God. You see, it's not just any God either, but the gifts of the true and living God who is glorious in His majesty and beauty. The God who has every reason to destroy us on account of our sin and rebellion, but who continues to shower us with kindness. That's a tremendous testimony, like it said in Acts, of, that He did good and gave rain and fruitful seasons, filling our heart with f- food and gladness. So you can't really learn to enjoy anything as you should until you learn to receive it as the gift of God. You haven't begun to enjoy riches until you see them as evidence of His kindness, wisdom, power, grace, mercy, and goodness. A girl might like flowers just because she likes flowers, but how much more she likes them if they come from a man in whom she delights is an expression of his love. There is a certain enjoyment in the flowers themselves, but her joy in the flowers is nothing in comparison to the assurance they give her of the love of the one who gave them to her. There's a problem here, isn't there? Is it not true that God loads both his friends and his enemies with gracious gifts? And if that's true, his enemies are, some of his enemies then are deceived and they take comfort in his gifts as if these gifts demonstrate that they are under his grace and favor when in fact they're still not reconciled to him. And can't believers be deceived into thinking that God does not love them if they focus on what God has given them in this world instead of the gospel, say, well, God must love other people more because they have more. You know, this is all true. But but whether friend or foe, God's gifts are still a testimony to his generous kindness and bounty. and, And they ought to produce thanksgiving and repentance. His goodness ought to lead us to repentance when we see him being good, whether it's to us or to other people. It's a testimony to us. In fact, we could even go a step farther and say that when these gifts don't melt a sinner's, a, a sinner's heart and lead him to repentance, it's not because God has been unkind, but because the sinner has been stubborn and rebellious, not to mention foolish. Fallen man is so stubborn that these things don't move him to repentance until God steps in by His Spirit to transform Suppose for a moment that God did not give anyone His Spirit and left us to continue in our stubbornness. But suppose He did everything else just the same as far as giving us things in this world. We all had the same things, but He did not give us His Spirit to to change our hearts. His goodness would still be 
just as evidenced in those gifts, even though nobody recognized it. His gift, he, he gives us just the right mix in this world of affliction to remind us that we need to be reconciled to him and of generous gifts to remind us that he is kind and tender-hearted toward us. Because of our present sinful condition, we need both the goodness and the severity of God to lead us to repentance and to reveal to us his glory and beauty as a God who is just and gracious. And when we look corporately, some people experience much more of trials and difficulties. Other people experience more of gifts. But when we look at the overall, look at it over in a comprehensive way, then we see the mercy and goodness of God in leading us to repentance with these things. It only demonstrates the wickedness of the human heart that God is certainly under in how, in, in how we would respond to him and not acknowledge him. God is certainly under no obligation to rebellious creatures like us to send his son to atone for our sins and his spirit to convert us. But he does these things for the great company of those that are his elect. And of all people, we ought to bask in the joy of his love and in the evidence of his goodness through that we see in his gifts. It is then that we learn to truly enjoy his gifts when we see them as expressions of who God is. Not as mere nice things, but as expressions of his abundant kindness and love. And when we learn to enjoy the good things of this world as his gifts, we begin to use them in a whole different way. Not only do we rejoice greatly in them because they are tokens of his love, but we also rejoice in using them for his glory. Now this is the second purpose of gifts, that we might share them with others. So he gives them to us for enjoyment, first purpose, second purpose, that we might share them with others. He gives them to us to give to others. This is so hard for us. We have such a tendency to hoard God's gifts for ourselves. As if we, as if, if we don't hoard them, we will not have anything. It is for this reason that verse 18 is sort of repetitious. He's trying to drive it into us that our riches are rightly used and enjoyed by us when we share them with others. God has given them to us not only for us to enjoy, but also for us to share. So first it says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works. If you have been given a lot, it is in order that you might do a lot of good with it for others. God could give everyone his or her portion directly to each person, but instead the way he works, he has chosen to give us the ability to provide for one another so that other people's portion is tied up with, with what I give them and my portion is tied up with what they give me. God has chosen to work this way in other things too. For example, he could have privately revealed his word to every individual person. There'd be no need for, for teaching or for um, us to encourage one another from the word of God. But instead, he raised up prophets and apostles to whom he gave his word, commanding them to proclaim it to others. We're dependent on them. Can you imagine what a fix we would be in if they had hoarded it up for themselves? Oh, I've got, I've got this truth from God. I'm not going to share it. I don't want anybody else to know about this. I want to keep this for myself. I don't want to spread it around. 
Not that God would have allowed that, but you, you see the point. In the same way, God gives to some great wealth, and it is in order that they might do good with it for others. Take a family with little children. Okay, here's a very basic illustration. Ordinarily, God gives the parents more than they need for themselves. Why? So that they can also provide for their children. <laughs> what if he didn't? Then the children wouldn't have what they need. Take a wealthy businessman. God provides him with enough to provide for his employees and for their families. And like God, he ought to give them more than just a bare subsistence. Doing good also speaks of providing for the poor and needy and in supporting the work of the gospel. We often think of it only as that. But it's the businessman too. It is the parents as well. All of these ways God has given us to share and to provide for others. And that's what we're supposed to do with our wealth. And second, it says that the rich should be ready to give, willing to share. God loves a cheerful giver. And so there needs to be a readiness and willingness. You ought to look for opportunities, being ready always to give, saying, where can I do good? How can I do good? This is one of the reasons that God has given you your wealth. I know a man that heard about a seminary student who was studying in North America. A member of the family of this student was sick, and he could not, the student couldn't afford to fly home to you know, a faraway country and uh, return again. He couldn't go and come back. He could go home, but he, couldn't, he only had enough money for a ticket home. He had enough to come there and to go back once. But the man who is always looking to do good without saying a word bought that man a return ticket and just quietly presented it to him. He was looking for opportunities to do good and to share. Likewise, the text says that you are to be willing to share. If you're asked to support a legitimate need, you ought not to complain. Be glad that you have the opportunity to do so. God has given you wealth to share with others. When riches are not used, they grow, grow corrupt. Like people, they're to be employed in doing good. If they're not used, they become like a stagnant pond. They stink and they breed mos- mosquitoes. Hear what James says about those who hoard what God has given them to use. James 5, 2. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. By hoarding what ought to have been given, your riches are said to be corrupted. They become a ruinous thing. Riches give you power to do good, and, but they also give you power to do much harm. You can ruin yourself like the prodigal son did. Spending your wealth on riotous living and prostitutes. You can ruin your children by constantly indulging them and not teaching them to work. You can ruin others by selfish business schemes that take advantage of them and impoverish them. But this passage teaches you that God has given you riches to do good. Jesus certainly knew how to use what he had. We are told that he went about everywhere doing good. He used his great riches and his abilities to do good for others. Satan is just the opposite. God gave him great riches to be used to minister to others as a ministering spirit, as an angel. But he used his gifts instead 
to harm others. He used his cleverness and all that he had. You are a steward, and a steward is entrusted is is not entrusted with his master's good for himself. His job is to portion out his master's goods in a wise and responsible way to the members of the master's household. What would you think of a steward who used his master's goods for himself and left the master's household to starve? That would be a very wrong use of the things that had been entrusted to him. Or perhaps you would say, where can I get a heart to do good and to be willing to share? I find that I'm altogether too stingy and greedy. Yeah, and I'll tell you, it is something that you must grow into through Jesus Christ. You see, your giving is a reflection of the regard that you have for Jesus Christ and His giving. You either act like someone who knows that you have been lavished with riches and riches and riches of grace, or you act like someone who's been given a raw deal. You ain't get enough. You're giving, you're giving like, your giving is like a barometer that measures your love for Christ. You either see yourself as having been given way more than your share, or you see yourself as having not been given enough so that you're always groping for a little bit more, feeling cheated. And as soon as you get whatever it is, then you just move up to want a little bit more. People always say, oh, if I just had this much, it would be good. And then I'd be generous. No, you wouldn't. If, you, if you're not generous now, you won't be generous. If you get a little bit more, you'll just want more still. How much better it is when you're so taken with Christ that you want to give to others just like He has given to you. When you're so moved and taken with His generous heart that you become generous too. This is something that you need to grow into as you study the love of God and the love of Christ, as you grow in the grace of God, as you understand the love of the cross and the riches of the glory of God that He has promised to you in Jesus Christ, the inheritance that you have laid up for you. All of these things contribute to that kind of an attitude that is ready to bless others. How important it is to understand the purpose of riches so that you can use them as God has intended. And now I want you to consider, lastly, the two promises given in verse 19 for those who use their wealth properly. These promises are quite closely related. God tells you that if you use your wealth properly, you will store up for yourself a good foundation for the future and lay hold on eternal life. Rich people are often concerned about foundations for the future. And in a way, you should be concerned about foundations for the future. A foundation is money that you lay aside for some purpose. The ARP has a foundation for orphans and a fund that was set up to provide money for the care of orphans. So it's laid aside for that purpose. The Bible teaches that parents ought to lay up for their children and for themselves in old age. This is not something you are to worry about or be anxious about, but if you have the means, you ought to take reasonable steps to provide a good foundation for the future. But the foundation in view in verse 19 is a much more important foundation It's a foundation for heaven. Here is an important principle that is often spoken about in the Bible. What you do here in this present world lays a foundation for all eternity. 
First of all, everything depends on whether or not you have Christ as your Savior. You must come to Him and believe on Him in this life. Because when the day of judgment comes, it will be too late. There is no way to have your sins forgiven than by looking to Jesus Christ now, in this present time. You're never too old or too young to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Once you die, it's too late. The door is closed. The Bible says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Jesus is the only foundation and there is no other foundation that anyone can lay. No other foundation for the church or any of her members to build on but Jesus Christ. Every member has so much sin that apart from Christ there is no hope of salvation. But in Him, salvation is certain. What sin is too great for the blood of Jesus to cover? But the rich of whom Paul is speaking are those that already profess to believe on the Lord Jesus. So Paul is not talking about believing on Christ for salvation here. Instead, he is talking about the good foundation that every believer ought to lay in preparation for heaven. You see, there is a connection between what you do after you have come to Christ and the reward that you will have in heaven. Those two things are associated. In 2 Corinthians 5.9, Paul says, We make it our aim to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In the parable of the minas in Luke 19, Jesus shows how ten servants were given a mina to invest while their master was gone. The first invested well and obtained ten minas. He was given authority over ten cities. The second invested his mina well and obtained five minas. He was was given authority over five cities. But the third man did not invest his mina. His mina was therefore taken away. so, uh, So this teaches how each was rewarded according to what he had done in the body. The first man stored up for himself a good foundation for the future. Your reward in heaven will be based on what you have done in the body. Do not be discouraged if you have been given less to invest and to do good with than others have. You can still lay up a good foundation. Jesus taught that the widow who gave her two mites gave more than all the rich people who gave larger gifts monetarily but they were relatively smaller. She gave all that she had. However, 1 Timothy 6.19 does teach that if you have been given much, then you have an opportunity to lay up a good foundation. The rich man who truly learns to use his wealth for God's purposes will have a great reward. The problem is there are so few rich men that ever learn to do this. Their temptations are great. And much is required of them because much has been given to them. This is why many who are first will be last, but the last first in heaven. Often those who are given much are not as faithful in their use of those things as those who are given but a little. 
in many ways it's easier to be faithful under persecution than it is to be faithful under prosperity. So do you see the lesson here? If you have been given much, you have the opportunity to do much good. God has given you an opportunity to be rich in good works. So Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. This is a foundation that you will be standing on for all eternity. Whatever you lay up here now will be your foundation forever. Your labor in the Lord will never be in vain. And we, as we saw last time in Psalm 112, God will not forget what you have done, but He will reward you. How gracious our God is. In no way do we deserve such rewards. If our works were judged apart from Christ, we would all be condemned. But in Christ, we are graciously accepted, and so are all our works that are done in sincerity. They don't have to be perfect works. Even a cup of cold water does not lose its reward. And what will that reward be? It will be that you're given greater service in heaven. Our service and our love will be the thing that makes us beautiful in heaven because we won't have dull vision anymore. We'll recognize the beauty. We will want nothing more than to serve God and our neighbor and to pour out our love. And those who have loved well here will have more love to pour out there. They will be over ten cities and another will be over five. One is able to love ten cities, one is able to love five. So you see that there is good reason to start working on that foundation now. But there is also another promise for you if you use your riches in ways that please God. What is the second promise? You will lay hold on eternal life. This is a great thing. God calls you to begin living life that you are called to live in heaven now. Eternal life begins now. You don't have to wait to start loving and start serving until you die. It is true that you won't be perfect now. But what you do for Christ now is part of the very same life that you'll have forever. This is a blessed life. It is a life that no one can take away from you. Your service in Christ will stand forever. What comfort there is, no moth and rust can destroy. No enemies can break in and steal. It is a life that is beautiful and glorious because it is a reflection of the beauty and glory of God. You're called to love the way the Father in heaven loves. What does He do? He gives and gives and gives. To love the way Jesus loved. To serve the way Jesus served. Christian, do you see? God has called you to lay hold of eternal li- on eternal life now. You're a sinner saved through Jesus Christ, deserving of nothing but condemnation. But you can begin to live as an heir of heaven now. In heaven you will have great wealth and you will always use it in ways that please God. You will enjoy it as a gift and you will share it with others. God calls you to live that way now. Your citizenship is in heaven now. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus now. Old things have passed away. All things have become new now. What a gracious God we serve that we can participate in giving and sharing. Please stand and let's call on the name of the Lord.
Lord God, how we thank you so much for the riches and blessings that you have given to us. They're such a wonderful thing, being a, a token of your love to us and an evidence of your kindness and goodness. And we pray that we would receive everything that we have from your hand. We pray that we would enjoy what you give us, that we would have a true enjoyment of it as gifts that you have given us and things that we can delight in. And we pray, Lord, that we would be eager to share what we have with others. And we thank you, Lord, that you have promised that we will be greatly blessed and rewarded, that we can even now begin to live the heavenly life that you have called us to live forever and ever. And we pray that we would be eager and ready to do that. Father, we thank you that you have exhibited such kindness to us in the gospel. We pray that we would have a greater recognition of how kind Jesus has been to us and that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly into his hands for blessing that we might live for him every day, that we might give ourselves wholeheartedly into service that will be a blessing to others and will come back to us as a blessing on ourselves. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved